Magic was one of the many ways that humanity tried to fight nature, because nature is cold and uncaring, and nature doesn't care if people die. People care if people die, and a lot of magic that we have is about just sheer surviving. You're listening to The Lost Bay Podcast, a show about and with indie tabletop RPG designers and artists. I'm Iko. The Lost Bay Podcast is supported by its patrons. Shout out to ZXU for being a recent new patron. I'm so honored, truly, that ZX supports the show. And you can support it too. Just head to patreon.com slash the Lost Bay, and I'll put the Patreon link in the show notes. Today my guest is Paolo Greco, author, publisher and game designer in Glasgow, Scotland. Paolo runs Lost Pages, an RPG press that has published many titles you might be familiar with, like Into the Odd, the first edition, or Wonder and Wickedness, or the Actonic Codex. Lost Pages' last creation is The Book of Gobe, an extraordinary game-neutral spellbook with a very peculiar horror vibe. The Book of Gobe is an awesome RPG book. It provides spells, failure mechanisms, monsters and paraphernalia, and even microfiction paragraphs that help you emerge into the universe of Gobe, the wicked and mysterious entity that is behind the magic of the Book of Gobe. Or to be more precise, it's Gobe's seven fingers that are behind the spell's power. And as a side note, I'm recording this voiceover alone in my little apartment in Paris at night. And I don't know, it's not a good idea. I, 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 I have the chills. So the book of Gobe is an awesome game material. But somehow, the thing that was most striking to me was that reading it, I had the feeling I was reading a real spellbook. A real dark and possibly dangerous spellbook. Everything from the contents of the book to its layout, the font used, made me feel like I had opened a forbidden old spell manual. And that is not a coincidence, because Paolo, who has designed, created and published the book, studies magic. Yeah, like real magic. Actually, they started nourishing a strong curiosity towards the occult since a very young age. I can't remember exactly how it started probably by a fascination of like mystery. And in the 80s, there was still, especially in Italy, like possibly a stronger belief in the supernatural and in superstition, especially superstition. And a lot of them just fascinated me. Why there are some reality roots that have a hidden working. And this hidden working is literally what the cult is about. I became like utterly fascinated about this when I was like maybe 10, 11. I started to study divination, I started to study astrology, tarot reading. That, that was pre-internet. What were your sources? Because I'm a pre-internet guy myself. So I, I know it was hard, you know, to find sources for non-traditional stuff. Well, a good way was to go to the local library again. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it didn't have much of it. I remember a lot of, like, astrology book in the public library of my town. 
But growing up, Paolo discovered another beautiful source of magic they describe as more reliable, and that is science. I just became like an empiricist, and I stopped believing in the possibility of magic. But then again, recently, I, because of like mental health reasons mostly, I picked up meditation again. There are some things about some forms of meditation which are so intense and give you so much grasp of your thought. So I would say that possibly like some form of meditation that I do practice are the closest I'll ever get to cast a spell. There are some experiences to be had. It's not always like a good place to be. It can be an overwhelming experience, but I came out richer of it every time. You know, when you described what is the occult, mm -hmm. when you said there are rules, hidden rules that explain how reality works, that makes me think about power. Yeah. And when I read Gob, I felt that there was this underlying theme of power, the power of the caster, the power of Gob, the power of things you want to control, but you can't control, you can control them somehow, but not totally. So Does that make sense? Occult and power? Oh, yeah, absolutely. For a, a lot of human history, magic has been, let's say, a, a part of like natural science. So let's say a, a practice that would help us deal with, with our problems. Magic is there because, in a way, it helped us survive. Magic was one of the many ways that humanity tried to fight nature. Because nature is cold and uncaring, and nature doesn't care if people die. People care if people die. And a lot of magic that we have is about just sheer surviving. So magic isn't really so different from science and technology. It's just another tool we use to protect ourselves. But protecting and healing are not the only two objectives of real-world magic. There is like a lot of magic about compelling other people to do things that is straight away having power on people. There is magic to make us invisible, and that's to give us freedom to do things. There is magic that used to be called love magic, but that's a terrible way of describing. Nowadays, it's called erotic binding, that it binds other people to do sexual acts. There is a lot of magic that is just like about exerting power. Magic was just one of the many ways in which we could exert our will on the world. And it wasn't in a way much different from building a roof to stop, to stop the sky raining on us, on our heads. So magic has to do with our intimate relationship to the world, right? I can relate to that. As a matter of fact, I grew up in an environment where the belief in quote-unquote magic was quite frankly encouraged. On a personal note, I come from a background where I had a very strong belief in what we very widely call magic. I come from a very rural place in Corsica. Mm -hmm. People used to come in my house. My parents called them when there were problems performing rituals, and that was taken extremely seriously. 100% true, and I had a enough-and-go relationship with that stuff broadly called magic for uh, quite a long uh, period of my life. 
I'm telling you all this because the conversation with Paolo was quite intense and it turned out to explore very unexpected areas. And I think this is the reason why, because we had both this connection with this peculiar subject. Very often I said, okay, this is fascinating, but I have to step back because mm -hmm. it's like it going to show me stuff that I'm not going to be able like to bear and I'm going to, I'm going to, to, it's going to be hard on me mentally. So, so basically what happened next is that in a very confusing way, I've talked to Paolo about my past mental health issues and how they did relate or not to quote unquote magic. And Paolo explained to me that the writing team of the book of Gobe talked a lot about mental health during the writing process? I feel like I put a lot of my mental health problems in the book. There are some things in the book that, are, that I wrote thinking about myself, and they're terrible. They're just really bad. But this is because Gob is a horror book, and we wanted to put, in a way, real horror in the fantasy horror. When I write about, there are some parts about eating disorders in the book that are about me. There are some parts more or less explicit about depression in the book that are about me, and I wrote them. And about Gob, I don't feel like I can say more because there are other authors. But what I can say is that Gob is a horror book. It's a very grim book. Everything in it is just terrible. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So the book of Gob is a spell book. It has seven chapters, each one dedicated to one of the seven fingers of Gob, like the finger trailing the letter, the finger that is not there, the finger catching a tear. On the cover of the book, there is drawn a beautiful and spooky hand of Gob, whatever Gob is. Each finger has a series of spells attached to it, and each spell has its own mechanics and comes with one of the microfiction paragraphs. In the book, you'll find paraphernalia, catastrophes. Catastrophes are like the effects of critical fails that might happen to a caster, and also monsters, adventure hooks, and rules for sorcery. All the spells are game neutral, and there is something extremely physical about them that makes them sound real. And here's Paolo about that. It's a deliberate choice. Roleplay games spells often have abstract descriptions. For example, like, oh, the wizard can see invisible creatures, or the wizard opens a breach in a stone wall. There are several problems with this kind of effect, but the, the biggest problem is that they don't they don't contribute much to the narration. While they do, they do contribute a game element, and that pushes forward the narration, but the narration of the spell itself is weak. 
one of the reasons I study magic is to better understand actually how people in the real world perform spells. The idea is that in the spell itself, you present a scene and steps and, and what to do with the spell and how the spell behaves. It creates a stronger image. It's way more concrete. And being more concrete is also great not only for a narration and an emotional connection to what actually happens, but it's also great because it's clearer how the spell works. Because explaining how a spell works on a very simple level, on a very material level, helps understanding how it works. Here's an example. There are two spells that I use often as an example. One of them is Password, and it's been in D&D since forever, and literally the wizard opened a breach in a wall. And, you know, it's a typical wizard opens a tunnel into a wall that, like, has been used in movies and in many other narratives. And it's kind of boring. I mean, it's great, and it's, like, a, an amazing utility spell. It's great also for tactics in combat because you can go around the opponent. It's great to run away. It's great to get in a vault. It's great. However, in um, Wonder and Wickedness, which I published, written by Brandon, the same spell has been re-implemented as the spell of the, of the subterranean gullets. And the spell says that all the subterranean cavities are actually the moles, bowels, and stomachs of the ctonic god Maxilor, the, the god of the subterranean gullets. The spell is a supplication to Maxilor to open one of its cavities. That's great and spooky and very suggestive. And as you said, that creates yes. narration or fiction or whatever we want to call it. You're studying historical magic. Yes. How do you do that? Where does that bring you and how do you do that? So, uh, so where the, well... So, I mean, you find actual historical books. I mean... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like real books. I bet if you go to your local library, they're going to have an edition of the Little Key of Solomon. Maybe it's a different title, maybe it's a section of another spell book, but there is going to be spell books, as in people, books that in the past were written by magic practitioners. And also there is a lot of academical writing on this. And academical writing is great because they specify their sources, and so you can read the sources, and the sources of the sources. And you can spend a lot of hours doing that. I mean, I guess I... Oh, yes. It's a never-ending search. And one of the things I've done this year, for example, I had a trip to Iceland, and in Iceland there is a museum of Icelandic sorcery. A quick warning, in the next segment there's going to be a little gory part. And I went there, of course, because I had to. And there... I possibly found one of the most striking spells I've ever seen or read in my entire life. I can't remember the official name of the spell, but the, the joke name is the Necropods. They are trousers made of human skin. To make them, someone has to donate the skin of their legs to you. It must be a male. And there are like a number of steps involving this. One of the material components for the spell is you must steal a silver penny from a widow at either Christmas or Easter or Michaelmas. So your avidity must be so strong to go to someone that resorts to taking alms and on the holiest days of the year, steal from them. And this is a good example of what I'm trying to put in my books. 
Paolo developed, created, and published the book. They also wrote part of it. But the book of Gob is a collective work. It has been written by several authors. Rowan A., a.k.a. Monsieur Le Batelier, Charlie Ferguson Avery, John Gregory, a.k.a. The Lawful Neutral, Ivoro, Furtive Goblin, Isaac Hill, an artist by Trevor Anderson and Enoch Duncan. Uh, the book started even before I was involved. The book started because a collective of authors started to write about God. They played with the concept. They, they wrote about it on their blogs for a long while before I was involved. Uh, at some point on Twitter, I made an open call for uh, spell books. And they answered the call, so they all contributed uh, a finger. And then there was like a very long process. The authors have been like very involved into trying to nail down the concept together. There has been a refinement of the form and the aim of the book. To find exactly what was appropriate for the book or not, we have endless discussions on our private Discord server about what is GOB and what is not GOB. So, for example, Stephen King is GOB, things that some things are GOB, some other things are not GOB. The Hand of Gob, the mysterious entity that is the source of the magic enclosed in the book, is drawn or rather appears on the book cover. The book is a hardback bound in lilac duo cloth. And a lot of attention has been put into the book object itself and particularly into the layout. The layout is a very strong vehicle for the atmosphere that you're building with the text of the book. It totally supports what's written inside the book. You feel like somehow you're reading a book from the past, you know? I laid out the book like this because I had the luck of the book having some very, how to say, prose-heavy content. Most of the book is paragraphs and like blocks of paragraphs. There are no maps. There are no like room descriptions. Most of the book is a few paragraphs of microfiction and a few paragraphs for the spells. And then catastrophes, and there are like 100 paragraphs. So it wasn't much a work of structuring an information presentation because the various parts of the content are not tightly bound together. They can be read pretty much in any order. There are no structural connections between the parts of the book. So I didn't need to think about like an information presentation. I could just make a, a layout that would work as a, as a composition. And by composition, I mean literally having shapes on the page and make them look nice together. I started the layout in April, May, and I laid out a good part of the book four or five times. For me, this is unfortunately normal. Before I end up with a layout I'm happy with, there is a lot of wrangling. In the last page of the book of Gob, Paolo has written that the layout is an adaptation and somehow a tribute to the layout used by Dove's Press, a vanity press or personal press co-founded in 1900 by Cobden Anderson, a very influential bookbinder in the arts and crafts movement. Here's Paolo about Cobden Anderson. He wrote an essay called Book Beautiful. I, I read that. I did some research on his work. I went to the Scottish National Library to get some material out. And after studying what he's done, 
I realized that doing exactly the same would not work for a role-playing game handbook. I came with these layout, which for 2021 is uh, very idiosyncratic. The way I discovered Dovespress is possibly the way uh, a lot of people that are not in the trade discover them. And it's because a few years ago, a new story appeared of these beautiful metal type, like font, you would say nowadays, that has been lost uh, because the, the designer... And here, Paolo is referring to Cobden Anderson, the designer and founder of Dovespress. True a ton of metal over the course of like several probably months uh, in the River Thames. Uh, a studio tried to make a digital type, like uh, an open type file essentially, tried to rebuild it mostly from extant copies of the books. And then eventually they managed to apply for a license to actually go in the Thames with scuba divers uh, around the Blackfriars Bridge. Uh, because that's, that was the closest bridge to the, to the press. And they dived and actually found a bunch of type. Uh, so they fished the, the metal and they actually have been able to make a good job with the font. And I had a license from, to use the font and I used it for a couple of smaller projects. Uh, this is the biggest project I used the font for. The cover of the book uh, is very different to RPG books. So instead of having uh, you know, a smooth four-color printed cover in hardcover, uh, it's bound in cloth, like you would have a book from turn of the century binder. The cover is debossed and it's silk printed. The book cloth is a duotone book cloth and it should create a, a strange effect. Depending on the orientation, there should be like some nice interplay of colors on the cover. That was Paolo Greco, designer, creator, and publisher of The Book of Gold, a game-neutral RPG spellbook. It's an amazing book object, and it's an amazing game book. You can get it from Lost Pages Bookshop. That's shop.lostpages.co.uk. You can also subscribe to Lost Pages newsletter at dream.lostpages.co.uk. .co.uk you can get in touch with Paolo on Twitter at Lost Paolo I'll put all those infos the shop link and the newsletter link and Paolo's Twitter handle in the show notes you've listened to The Lost Bay a show about and with TTRPG designers and artists it's produced by me Eco and music is by Avery Ice The show episodes are also available on YouTube with English subtitles. You can support The Lost Bay and help me give voice to amazing TTRPG creators and artists by becoming a patron. Just head to patreon.com slash thelostbay. I've put the link in the show notes too. Thanks a lot for listening and until next time, stay well. <laughs>